So whenever uh, we have a couple of free moments at home and there's no sports on, uh, my wife and I love to watch HGTV. It gives us all the ideas, yes. We bit the bullet and bought Discovery Plus so we can have all of the home improvement shows. And my favorite part of every home improvement show is Demo Day. Yes, there's actually something in New York, I forgot what it's called. They'll let you go to a place and just break stuff. You know what? So I'm looking forward to going there. I think I have some repressed anger, but that's another sermon. Uh, Demo Day is when, in hopes of making something beautiful and renovated, they have to first deconstruct some stuff. Right? In order to really get to the bathroom of your dreams, the kitchen of your dreams, you first have to take some stuff apart. Now, in the same way that so many people have de uh, demolished or deconstructed a bathroom or a kitchen, uh, so many people have done and are doing that also with their faith. They're taking the sledgehammer because of a number of things, which we'll get into in a second, to their beliefs in order to unearth their core beliefs in their life. Now, deconstruction is something that a lot of people are talking about these days. And if you have never done it, you might hit a point in life that you will be doing if you stick around with Jesus long enough. A lot of times for people who grew up in Christian households, we just inherit a set of beliefs. And as we grow older, sometimes those beliefs don't fit us any longer. Now, just to put us all on the same page, deconstruction is the process of reevaluating your core beliefs. It's the process of reevaluating your core beliefs. Now, to a certain extent, this is a good and healthy thing. But just like a kitchen or a bathroom, there is a point when deconstruction is actually destructive. That there are some walls in place, there are some load-bearing beams that you cannot take down because if you take those walls down, if you take that beam down in search of something beautiful, you're actually going to destroy everything in the process. But there is an aspect of deconstruction that is good and healthy and I think vital for us if we want to be people who follow Jesus. There's a couple times in life that I've seen as common periods when people tend to deconstruct their faith. Uh, one of those periods is just at life's major milestones. So you're about to go to college, and you go to college, and now you are a freshman. And this is the first time in your life that you are no longer under your parents' wing. And they may have raised you to believe a number of things, but now you're by yourself and you're reevaluating your core beliefs. Maybe it's not going to college, maybe you're in New York City for the first time and you're trying to determine how Jesus and faith fits into this present moment. For other people, it's when they get married or when they turn 40 or when they have their first child and now they are starting to reevaluate, how do I raise a child well? And even though faith might not have been something they've thought about for themselves, they have this beautiful, precious being in their lives now, and they want to raise them the right way. So they start to go under this process of reevaluating their core beliefs. Other times, it's not a major milestone. It's not something good at all, actually. A lot of people deconstruct their faith when the church has failed them. If you grew up Catholic, maybe this was uh, the series of scandals that happened and are happening uh, with priests who have sexually assaulted people. Uh, maybe it was your priest that did something or a priest you knew. And when that happens, when a church or a church leader fails us, whether you're Catholic and it was a priest, or if you were Protestant and it was a pastor who was abusive, stole some money, had an affair, or did something corrupt, we always have this temptation 
that when we see the corruption in the church, and it absolutely does happen, to throw away the message with the messenger, that maybe what they said wasn't all that true. So when we are failed by the church, a lot of times we go through this process of reevaluating our core beliefs. Sometimes we are failed by the church not because of a person or something that anyone did, but just because of the theology that was taught. Uh, when I was in college, some of my friends uh, grew up holiness, and they were going to a holiness church. And the church that they went to, uh, it was, you know, you weren't allowed to watch anything on TV. Uh, everything was sinful. Women had to wear uh, skirts down to their ankles. No jeans were allowed, even though jeans are not in the Bible. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Everybody wore, like, a loose-fitting outfit in chancletas in scriptural times. But these people, some of my friends, really did struggle with faith because for years they were taught that they were going to hell if they wore pants. And they encounter people with genuine faith and they start to get into real conversations about life and God. And they say, well, I don't see how this lines up. And when we're failed by harmful theology, by our churches, we're tempted to throw away the baby with the bathwater. That maybe Jesus is not all that he's cracked up to be as well. For other people, I've seen this so much, a lot of friends from all over the country, and their church essentially got in bed with a certain political party. I won't go into too many more details beyond that. Don't, if you have an email, email Lester at Renaissance NYC. <laughs> uh, and as a result, uh, what, what once upon a time was a place to proclaim the gospel became just pandering to a political party. It wasn't about Jesus anymore, it became about America. Now, I love America, I pray for America, but America is not the promised land. This is not heaven on earth. We are Gentiles, not the promised people. So whether it's through bad theology or whether it's through corrupt actions of a leader, a lot of times when the church fails us, uh, it really is a time, a time of deconstruction. Another time when a lot of you, if you haven't done this yet, you will do this at a certain point, uh, when we start to deconstruct our faith and we start to really um, uh, process and reevaluate our core beliefs is when your faith in Jesus, however small or however new that is, when that becomes inconvenient. If you stick around Jesus for a long enough time, if you follow Jesus, there will be thousands of times in the journey of what it means to follow Jesus where following Jesus makes your life more difficult, not less difficult. And when faith becomes inconvenient, not if faith in Jesus becomes inconvenient, when faith becomes inconvenient, then what? We start to process and reevaluate our core beliefs. What do I truly believe? One of my favorite scriptures is about a man named John the Baptist in Matthew 11:2, And John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Jesus said, no man born of a woman is greater than John. High praises from Jesus. John is thrown in prison because of uh, his comments about the corrupt actions of King Herod. And when John is in prison for having integrity and speaking out against wrong, it says, now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What is John doing? He's reevaluating his core belief that he preached earlier that Jesus is the one, the promised Messiah, God coming down into the flesh. But now when his life is thrown, when he's thrown in prison, what happens? He's starting to reevaluate his core beliefs. 
Now, I, I know so many people, particularly my single friends in here, when the dating pool shrinks by 300% because of your faith in Jesus, then what? What happens when following Jesus means filing your taxes in a different way? That the tax return is less, not more. That there's an honesty that's permeating through your life, throughout your whole entire being, that now it is inconvenient. You know what happens? We start to reevaluate our core beliefs. Do I really believe this or do I really believe that? Now, other times, it's not because of a major milestone. It's not because of corruption in the church. It's not because of inconvenience. It's just because life sometimes hits hard. And it's when suffering hits us in life. Uh, this could be the death of a loved one. This could be uh, the death of a dream you've had in your life. Uh, one of the, the joys of being a pastor is also met with profound sorrow that we get to pray with people in their life and we get to hear all the dreams. And sometimes there are dreams that have died. Uh, what do you do when the dream dies? We start to, re we start to process and reevaluate our core beliefs. What do I believe about God and his goodness? What do I believe about faith in Jesus? What do I believe about all of these things? Uh, when my wife passed away 10 years ago, I remember going through this major process of reevaluating my core beliefs to think to myself, does God even exist? Let's start there. And if he does exist, does he love me? And if he exists and he loved me, how does that square with him allowing this to happen in my life? And for months and probably over a year, I was wrestling with the most fundamental questions of faith and what was happening. Suffering hit and we start this process of reevaluating our core beliefs. Now we're in this series uh, called Kingdom Come and for the next number of weeks we're going to be looking at a couple of Renaissance's core beliefs, things that we want to hold on to no matter what is going on around you. And we want to gently and lovingly take a sledgehammer to a couple of different things to start the process of deconstruction of some things that we are holding on to that we have no business holding on to. In this series, we're going to be looking at a couple of different things. And uh, today, I want to take apart a word that we have heard a thousand times. And I want to replace it with a better word, something more beautiful. So I want today to be demo day and the reveal all in one. Uh, today, we're going to take a sledgehammer to the word Christian. We're going to take a sledgehammer to the word Christian. Now, if you ask 100 people, you'll get 100 different definitions of what that word means. What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, if you are new to faith, and you may or may not even call yourself a Christian, or if you haven't been to church in a decade, uh, you have picked a phenomenal week to be here because I hope to paint a picture today of what Jesus wants from you, for you, and through you. And if you've been rocking with Jesus for a while today, I hope to solidify and clarify what it is that God wants from you, what it is that God wants you to believe about yourself, what it is that God wants you to do and to be and to believe. Now, here's the thing. The word Christian came into the, uh, the common vernacular. It was first introduced in the scripture in Acts 11.26, and it says, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And it wasn't meant to be something that was an identity. It was just a category to put people in because there was a group of people who behaved differently than what they were used to. So what we do is we always need to label other people so they can make sense to us. So in their process of labeling other people to make sense of them, they said, oh, 
These are the people who talk about Jesus the Christ. They're Christians. It wasn't something that people took with pride. These people identified themselves as followers and disciples of Jesus. But over the years, particularly as Christianity has become the dominant religion in the West and certainly in America, faith in Jesus and following Jesus has morphed into this thing of just being associated with him. Jesus has never called any one of us to be associated with him. He calls us to follow him. He doesn't ask you to be a Christian, to sign something as if you're filling out a census. He calls us to follow him. Now, one of the great dangers in our lives, and I've said this a couple of weeks ago, one of the great dangers in my life is to add Jesus to a life that I have already chosen. That is American Christianity. Pick the life that you want. Pursue the thing that you want to do. And if you want to be blessed, add Jesus on top. That is the opposite of biblical faith, of what Scripture calls us to do. That is actually the opposite of discipleship, the word that we hope to resurrect and to embody and to live out and to explore today of what Christ truly is asking of us. Uh, He's not asking us to just simply be associated with him. He's asking us to renounce comfort and to be his disciple, to follow him. Now, this brings us to the million-dollar question. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean for you to call yourself to not just in name only, but what does it mean for you to be a disciple? What does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That is, the, that is what he is calling us to. Now, a quick caveat of what it's not, and oftentimes I find that it's helpful to, to say what something is not in order to further clarify what it is. Discipleship is not something you get from a church by meeting with different people once a week. It requires that you have spent time with people and you are life on life with people. In a couple of weeks, oh, actually today, our signups for DNA groups are going live. They'll be on our website. Um, and I strongly encourage everybody under the sound of my voice to register for DNA groups. They're groups of four to six men or four to six women who meet weekly to, to come together, to be formed into the image of Jesus together. It is vital that you do that. But that's not all there is to discipleship. It's not just meeting with people. It's more than that. It's also not just like what you learn, right? There's a lot of things that we can do by reading a book. There's a lot of things we can learn and glean. But discipleship is not best summarized by just learning new things. Uh, Discipleship is not something that you can pick up from someone else. It's something that you yourself have to do. It's a process that we go through. And there is a text in the Bible that I think highlights and clarifies what discipleship is and also what it means to be a disciple. So Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, I'll be reading it. It says, when Jesus heard about it. Now, this is a text right after John the Baptist was beheaded. We mentioned him a little while ago. So when Jesus heard about what happened to John the Baptist, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted, and it's already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. 
He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up the 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now we're going to get into some, uh, some words from this text that I think are going to really show us what it means to be a disciple. But essentially, this text demystifies what it means to follow Jesus. Discipleship is not about a conference. It's not about a saying. It's not about a membership. Discipleship in your life is obedience to the next step. This is what we see in this text. Here are men and women following Jesus, and Jesus puts them in a precarious scenario. They know we do not have enough to feed these people. They know this for sure. Jesus, we have five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish. Jesus says, great, have everybody sit down and tell them food is coming. They have to be thinking as they are working and walking and doing whatever Jesus is asking them to do. They have to be thinking to themselves, this is a terrible idea. There's not enough food. And not just that, this is not like in a time where they could stop at a bodega on their way home. It truly was a matter of life and death for people. When they were saying, send the people home to get food, this was actually loving because if you were to fall ill or like you're in a crazy heat uh, and you don't have food and supplies to make it home, you could die in the desert. This is, this is not something that was a light matter. So in their compassion for people, they're like, yo, send them home. We know we don't have enough. And Jesus is saying, have everybody sit down, tell them food is coming. And they have to trust that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and that he will do with the little what they could never do on their own. It is their life in the hands of Jesus, trusting that he can do it. Now, for all of us, it might not be as dramatic as this scripture, but all, in all of our lives, there are next steps where we can tell ourselves and we can accept from Jesus, I am going to go even though I have no idea how it's going to work out. I am going to do this thing even though I don't know what it's, going to, what it's going to lead to just because you're telling me to do it. That is discipleship. It is obedience to the next step. It is allowing Jesus to, to direct and to redirect our lives, to direct and to redirect us uh, financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every single way, even though we don't know what's on the other side. Now, this text shows us that loud and clear, and in so many different ways, I think we overcomplicate what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But in some ways, I couldn't just say, hey, you guys should do it. Whatever the next step that Jesus is calling you to, I want you to pray about it, and I want you to do it, and that would be good and helpful for us, because I do think we learn more in obedience than we can learn. Uh, we learn more in a minute of obedience than we would learn from a lifetime of reading. One minute of just simply following Jesus, being obedient, we learn so much from him in these ways because this is how he shapes us and forms us. But there are four words in this text that I want to, to bring out to the surface that teach us what it means to be a disciple. I think this text has a couple of meanings here that are not very plain on the surface, but it teaches us more about what it means to be a disciple, and it's these four words. When someone asks you, what are you? I don't want you to be weird and say, I'm a disciple of Christ. Uh, just say you're a Christian. That's a fine definition. <laughs> but I want these to be the operating words that we understand our faith through. We are taken. We are blessed. 
We are broken. We are given. This is what it means to be a disciple. We are taken, blessed, broken, and given. Uh, the first word, uh, we see this in verse 19. Uh, he took the five loaves and the two fish. Uh, Jesus has a habit of taking insufficient things and doing miracles with them. This is not just with bread and fish. This is with people. This is how he started his ministry. In Matthew 5, it says that Jesus called a man named Levi, uh, who was a tax collector. And if you've been around church, you've heard us talk about tax collectors. They were the most hated people in society. They were men who, they were Jewish men who took from Jewish people to give money to Roman oppressors. And oftentimes, they not only took what was required, but they took extra to pad their own pockets. Levi was one of these people, and he was uh, collecting taxes in the middle of the square. Jesus walks up to him while he is collecting taxes and says, follow me. Jesus meets a woman at this well, and many scholars would say that she had a life of prostitution and many uh, things that would have held her back in so many different contexts to be anybody's disciple. Jesus, in one conversation with this woman, turns her into an evangelist that will go back to her entire town and village and tell people about Jesus. Jesus called a man named Peter to be his disciple, and Peter was an unlearned fisherman, someone with no credentials, someone with no skill, no expertise. Jesus has a habit of taking insufficient things and insufficient people to work miracles through them. To be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus means that just in the same way that he took up these five uh, pieces of bread and uh, these two pieces of fish, that he takes up our life, that he chooses us. In Ephesians 1, it says this, and this is one of the most profound scriptures in the Bible. It says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Christianity differs from every religion because it says that you did not choose him, but he chose you. In John 15 and 6, Jesus tells his disciples very plainly, you did not choose me, I chose you, that you and your life would bear fruit and fruit that would remain. Our lives are taken a hold of by Jesus. Now, what does this mean? It means that if Jesus takes a hold of us, and if Jesus takes a hold of us, even though we are insufficient on our own, then it means that it is God's intentional design and desire that you didn't do anything or say anything to make God say, yo, yo, he's really killing it. Come on, yo, come with me. Yo, shorty, yo, shorty is, yo, you had an amazing last week. You come with me. That the plan for God to choose you started with him. It means it is unearned. If God chose us uh, before the foundation of the world, it means that it was God's desire before there was even a planet. And it means that it was also unsought after. Not only did you and I not earn it, but Christian theology teaches us that God's actions of grace occur even before we seek after it. Uh, whenever we come to a position where we come after God, it is only us responding to God's grace already poured out to us in Christ. This is love, John says. Not that you love him, but that he loved you and gave, gave his son for you as a propitiation for your sins. To be a disciple of Christ means first and foremost that our lives are taken a hold of by Christ. What better place is it to be than in his hands? What better place is it to be? Where would you rather be? On your own, in your own wisdom, in your own power, in your own plan, even if it's mildly successful, or would you rather be in his hands and to go for the journey and go wherever he takes you? To be a disciple is to be taken by him. 
Number two, to be a disciple is to be blessed. Now, if you read through the scripture, you will find a much different definition of what it means to be blessed than what our common vernacular, uh, the thoughts that come to our, our minds when we think about blessing. Verse 19, it says, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. What was Jesus doing when he looked up to heaven and blessed the five loaves and the two fish? He had a purpose in mind for those things. What was ordinary would now become holy and usable. What used to be discardable was now going to be something that was going to create a miracle. When scripture says that we are blessed, it is not in material blessings. Now, I always have to give this caveat because I never want people to think that I don't pray for things. I pray for things all the time. <laughs> like, you know, I never want people to think like, well, you know, I only want whatever you want from God. I struggle to sing, I just want you. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I do. I want you for sure. But there's a couple of other things that we can slide those on the table as well. It'd be cool. You don't have to do them in order, but just, you know, you choose what order you do those things, God. Uh, in so many different ways, uh, you know, we think of blessing and we think of God doing something in our, in our life. We think of God keeping us with health and, and safety. Again, majorly amazing things. Uh, my son's three and six years old. They have mastered the stall tactics around bedtime, and they would rather do anything than go to sleep. Daddy, let's pray. And I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> bless mommy, bless daddy, bless grandma. And they go down a whole list, people that they didn't even met. I'm like, you didn't even meet him. You don't even know who he is. We're not praying for his blessing because you don't know who he is. In so many different ways, when we hear this word blessed, we think about what God could do to benefit our lives. And there is a, a piece of life with God that says that God is a good father who wants to give us good things. Simultaneously, blessing does not mean that. Blessing means in scripture to be fully satisfied, to receive God's favor regardless of the circumstances. This means that in every single season in life that we have God's favor, that we have God's eyes on us, that God still knows the numbers of hair on your head. Some of those, some people are easier to count than others. That God takes special notice of you. You are not forgotten. You are not less important because you don't stand on a stage. You are not discardable. That God hears your prayers and he listens. God hears us. And we can have a boldness to go to God because we have his favor in our life for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, regardless of the circumstance. But I know what you're thinking. Jordan, I have so many sins in my life, things that I have done in the past, the present, and I know I'm going to do in the future that I know will preclude me from blessings. What then? Well, this is the beauty of Christianity. This is the beauty of the gospel that Jesus took all of our sins and took the curse associated with our sins, which would prevent us from having blessing. And he took it on himself and nailed those to the cross. The great reversal, as many scholars call it, he got what we deserve and we get what he, what he deserves goodness and blessing and favor in every single circumstance. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that we are taken a hold of by him. We are blessed. We have God's favor. God's eyes look upon us with grace and with mercy. He is ready to receive us. He does not shun us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has separated you from your sins. We're taken, we're blessed. 
and this is the one I wish wasn't true. We're broken. God corrects and chastises everyone who is his child, one of his children. One of the biggest misconceptions about discipleship is that we can learn it neatly and nicely just by doing a daily journal. I journal, so this is not pejorative to that. There are some lessons, there are some things that God wants to do in your life that you cannot learn from other people. There are some times in our life where the best way for God to grow us and to shape us and to make us in his image is he has to break us. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 5 and 8. It says, uh, although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I hate this. I hate that this is true. If this is true of Jesus, how much truer is it of us? The lessons of discipleship many times are not taught on a Sunday morning. They're taught with walking with God through the fire and holding onto his hand and saying, I'm just not going to let go. This is all I know how to do right now. I'm just not going to let go, and I'm going to let the situation do whatever it does, and I'm going to hold on in faith. And breaking does occur. And many times what God does in our life is he breaks us graciously, wisely, but it is a breaking nonetheless. Uh, one of the things that I've struggled with the most in my life is uh, I am a control freak. And I love to know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and why it's going to happen. And one of the things I've realized over the years is that when I constantly spend my time searching for control in situations, it is the most nauseating and frustrating thing on the planet. And I have learned to let go of my constant search for control, not because of any lessons that I learned from someone else, but just because I have felt the pain of searching and grasping for control in every circumstance. I, used to, I am a recovering people pleaser. I have talked many times about this. God has done amazing things in my life to free me from this constant prison, this incarceration of other people's opinions, where I need for you to approve of everything that I think and say and who I am as a leader. And God did not do this through a great Bible study. He did this because he saw me leaning on people's opinions, and he knew, Jordan, it's going to crash, it's going to crash. Okay, fire you, I'd get off. And then it always crashes. And I have to come up with a sore elbow from having leaned my life on other people's opinions. And I have learned not to do that through being broken, through pain. Sometimes in your life, you will feel and experience pain. Sometimes it's because of us and our terrible decisions. Sometimes it's because God is trying to grow you to be a disciple. This is how he forms us, oftentimes through, through breaking us. The last word that we see, actually I want to read an A.W. Tozer quote about being broken. A.W. Tozer is an author. Uh, he wrote a book called The Pursuit of God and many other books. He's one of my favorite authors. He says, before God can use someone, he must first break them. Before you are usable, before your life is really truly going to be able to impact someone's life, it's not going to come through head knowledge, but it's going to come through a person who has gone through some stuff and come out on the other side trusting in Jesus. Um, the last word is given. So we are taken, we are blessed, we are broken, and we are given. Uh, when Jesus taught his disciples what he wanted them to do, 
he would refer to them in terms of, you are the light of the world. Not that they were the big L light, but that they were a reflection of him. And he says something that is so profound. He says, no light that's ever been lit is meant to be hidden under a bed. When you light something, you do it so that it can give off light to everyone else. The problem with so many of us and the problem with how we understand our lives is we struggle with understanding our purpose in life because we want to be a means to an end instead of the we want to be an end, excuse me, instead of a means to an end. We want to receive everything and give nothing. But everything in life that is useful is there because it is a means to an end, not an end of itself. Shovels dig holes. Uh, tooth brushes, get rid of dragon breath, everything in this life that is useful, that you use, that is good and valuable, it is a means to an end. It's not an end itself. So many times in Christianity, at our church, we have people who are, you know, our church, just like so many not-for-profits, we live by the 80-20 rule, right? So 20% of people do 80% of the work. One of the reasons we talk about joining a crew here at Renaissance is not just because we need more people to run a camera or to plug something in. We do need help to run a service. But it's a discipleship issue when people think that their lives are meant to just be there to consume, that I'm here to receive something and I'll give whenever I want to, I'll do whatever I want to. That's more than a do you wake up on time on Sundays issue. That's a discipleship issue. If we don't see our lives as a means to an end, that we are here to bless the community of people who are, we say, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to give God glory with all of our lives. We are here to be given out. And when we see our lives as taken a hold of by Jesus, despite our many insufficiencies and insecurities, as blessed by him, as broken graciously and wisely in the hands of the master, and as people ready to be given out to the world, I think we might see God's kingdom come here in New York City. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, uh, I pray that you would um, light something up in our hearts, that we would not settle for an association with you, but rather that we would seek to be your followers, that we would seek to be people who reflect you in all that we do, that we would trust you wherever you take us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.